Today's guest is Stefan Fatsis, an author and journalist. He regularly appears as a guest on National Public Radio's All Things Considered daily radio news program and as a panelist on Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. He's a former staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal and has also written numerous sports books, including Word Freak and the focus of today's podcast, A Few Seconds of Panic. In the summer of 2006, Stefan finagled his way into the Denver Broncos training camp roster as a kicker to see what life was like as an NFL player. Stefan's journey not only sheds much-needed light on the inner, weird world of kickers, but also humanizes the day-to-day struggles of being an NFL athlete. Enjoy. Well, well, I was a journalist. I had written two books. I was a reporter for the Wall Street Journal at the time. I was covering sports. That was my beat. Um, And that beat included the NFL. And I was literally sitting at my desk here in Washington, where I live, at the journal's office. And I was trying to come up with a new book idea. And I thought my previous book was about me becoming an expert level Scrabble player. Word Freak was the title of that book. And I wanted to do another book that was participatory journalism, where I become the thing that I'm writing about because the thing is interesting and different and weird. Um, subcultures are, are perfect for telling stories if you can participate and become part of them, to have a, a, a way of emotionally connecting with readers. And literally sitting at my desk, I thought, what's the one thing in sports that I could do? I mean, I thought of George Plimpton's book, Paper Lion, which had come out in 1963, which was the year I was born. Um, let me try, let me say it again, he came out in 19, it came out in 1966. He did it in 1963, which was the year I was born. He became a quarterback with the Detroit Lions. But that book was sort of not really about trying to become a quarterback. It was more of a goof in terms of his athletic ability. Um, I wanted to be serious about trying to do something. And sitting at my desk, I thought like, what's the one thing that I could credibly attempt to learn to do. I couldn't become a quarterback because I'm like, you know, small and 42 years old or however old I was at the time when I had the idea. Um, I played soccer my whole life. I could kick. Um, I could learn how to kick. Um, and pretty quickly, I just started calling all of my NFL contacts, mm-hmm. owners, general managers, people in the NFL's office on Park Avenue in New York, trying to see if a team would be willing to let me do what George Plimpton had done more than 40 years earlier, which was join the team during training camp. Um, And I think I started trying to get a team sometime in the late summer of, I don't even know, it was like 2000, maybe it was the spring of 2005. Um, I contacted 20 different teams, All of them said no. Some of them were like, hey, that's a great idea. Let me run it up the flag and see if Coach will go for it. Let me see if the GM will go for it. Um, And I got no's across the board. A lot of it was like, yeah, it'd be fun, but uh, that'd be a distraction. We couldn't allow a reporter to do that. And finally, I I called the Broncos. And I hadn't called the Broncos. They were like number 20 on my list or 21 on my list because – Mike Shanahan's reputation was as a media denier, as a hard ass, very controlling, um, didn't like the idea of, of, of any outside influence, never had much to say publicly, um, really kept a tight lid on the organization. But my in was that the owner of the Broncos, the late Pat Bolin, was a really good source of mine. He was the head of the television committee 
uh, for the NFL owners that negotiated their TV deals. So I was in contact with Pat pretty frequently because of my job covering um, the business of sports for the Wall Street Journal. And I called Pat up and he picked up the phone and I sort of gave him my spiel, like, here's what I want to do, George Plimpton, modern, I want to do it seriously, I want to kick. And there was a long pause on the line. Right. And Roland says, huh, I thought you were calling about the TV negotiations. <laughs> and there was another pause right. and he said, I kind of like that idea. Let me think about it. I'm going to talk to Shanahan and see what we can do. And like two or three weeks went by and might've been even more, it might've been a couple months and Bowen calls me and says, we're going to do it. Get your ass out here for mini camp in June. You wow. better be ready to kick. And I was <laughs> like, what? So I like that moment of like the title of the book, right? That was the first few seconds of panic. Like, holy shit, I'm going to actually get to do this. Yeah. Don't fuck up. Um, <laughs> and at that point though, I had been preparing. Like I, I, you know, I'm a good reporter. So when I had the idea, I wasn't gonna wait for a team to say yes before I did what I knew I had to do to be ready if a team did say yes. Gotcha. And so, yeah, which is funny because the NFL in 1963 is not the NFL in the 21st century. Like right. back then guys had two or three jobs and then they went to practice from a liability standpoint, did you feel that that was like a big barrier between like, got like team saw you just as a liability? Well, Mike, you know, the, the reputation that teams and athletes have, particularly on that in the NFL is sort of what I described with Mike Shanahan, that they are controlling to, yeah. you know, to the nth degree, that there is no room for anything unexpected, anything unprogrammed. And the NFL is the most program league when it comes to the way the team treats its athletes. Gotcha. Um, you know, you talked about the difference between the NFL in 1963 and the NFL in 2006 when I did this, they're not even comparable. Mm -hmm. I mean, television rights, the money, the way athletes um, prepared themselves. I mean, in 1963, athletes came to training camp to get into shape. They didn't do anything in the off season right. because like you said, they were working these other jobs because they had to support their families and themselves. Um, so part of my um, motivation to do this wasn't that like, oh, I can kick and that'll be fun. It was that I wanna show what the NFL, what the modern NFL is actually like. And the only way to do that, to get beyond the wall that team front offices and team media departments and the athletes themselves set up to prevent the public from seeing what it's really like. The only way to penetrate that would be for me to become one of them, to, per, to, to persuade the athletes that it is in their interest for a writer to tell their true story of what it's actually like to play in this league. The kicking was just a way to get inside. Um, it was the one thing that I could do reasonably credibly to penetrate the wall between the athlete, the professional modern sports franchise, and the writer and the public. So it's, it was more like trying to get a tourist visa to North Korea than going. 100%. I mean, it wasn't like I had some burning desire to become an NFL kicker. I mean, look, I could kick a ball. I played soccer my whole life. Um, yeah. I mean, until I tore my ACL for a, a, for 
my second ACL, um, I played in leagues as an adult. I knew how to kick. Um, yeah. I'm a decent athlete, I'm not a professional caliber athlete, but I'm coordinated. I can kick, I can play, I can throw, I can catch. Um, right. You know, I was a good enough athlete that I felt that if I could get the proper training and get into shape, mm -hmm. I could at least not look like a dork, right? <laughs> that I wouldn't embarrass myself. So my goal was to become good enough that the players would, on the one hand, be able to make fun of me because they would do that anyway, because I'm not a real athlete. No way. On the other hand, they could see that I was trying and that I was competent and that I wasn't a fraud. Gotcha. And so, but I think your perspective is interesting because the, the only thing harder than being a kicker is probably being a parent of a kicker, especially at the games. And <laughs> I've rarely met a parent when I train or work with high school, college, whatever kids that is like, my son has to be all American or nothing. Half the time it's like, we're just happy. He's out of the house. We don't understand it. It's so non-threatening, right? I, you know, he's not going to get his brains bashed in. But I, but I think for a lot of parents, they, they also come up against this barrier of like, okay, what is it actually like to be behind the, the face mask? So to speak, right. out there. Now talk a little bit about, your preparation of one of the bigger characters in the book is Paul Woodside. And uh, I have not personally uh, met him or worked with him. There are many NFL kickers, coaches, current and former who credit him with, you know, sparking their love of kicking. And he is a more like a, a kicking evangelist, I would yeah. say. Bengali. He's yeah. Yeah. So, so talk to me about what it was like meeting the guru, Paul Woodside. What I did was, I mean, I knew as soon as I had the idea, I knew that I had to get into shape, one, and two, like real shape, and two, I had to learn how to actually kick. I couldn't just wing it. Um, and that would be part of the story anyway. Um, so the first thing I did was I found a trainer in D.C., and I found him through an NHL player that I had written about during the NHL's lockout in 2004, 2005. So I went back to that guy and I said, hey, I got this crazy idea. I wanna to try to get an NFL team to let me kick for them, but I, I've gotta get into shape. I don't weigh enough. My legs aren't strong enough. I'm just nodding. I'm in like weekend athlete shape. I need to get into real athlete shape. He was like, I love this idea, let's do it. And I was going to see him um, twice a week okay. um, for months to get into shape. And over the course of the year, I put on like 12 pounds. Um, which was not enough in the end. I think I really wish I had put on like 20 pounds, but I actually added lots of muscle and I learned, you know, I was a lot stronger. So I was ready to kick. And the second thing I did was I just Googled Washington, Virginia, Maryland, kicking, camp, coach, whatever. And Paul Woodside and his camp was the first thing that was one of the first ones that popped up. And I blindly sent an email to Paul and I told him exactly what I just said. NFL team, 40 year old dude, want to kick, yeah. um, want to write a book about it. And he wrote back, let's do this, I'm in. Awesome. And you know, from <laughs> the first email, yeah. it was like, oh man, I found not only this bubbly, enthusiastic evangelist for kicking, I found a guy that understands what I'm trying to do here because I could see where a lot of 
coaches, coaches that take themselves and what they do a little too seriously <laughs> would have thought this was a waste of time. This is a fool's errand. They wouldn't have appreciated both the quirky aspect of this middle-aged dude wants to learn how to do this and not just do it, but do it in an NFL camp, but also the literary aspect. He understood the idea of me trying to wanting to write a modern paper line. He, he was, he was, he just embraced it and he embraced me. And so we had this amazing year long um, relationship where Paul for free, let me trained me and I would go see Paul once or twice a week. Um, you know, while in the, in the first summer and fall, and then over winter, he gave me stuff to do and I would see him occasionally. And then I was seeing him once a week. And then once the Broncos said, yes, it was like twice a week clockwork. I'm going out to Virginia to some high school field and Paul is kicking my ass telling <laughs> me how to become a kicker. Right. Gotcha. And so, and I mean, I think, you know, his story, uh, you know, oh. talk about it. I'm trying to get him on the show. I got to like track him down or something, but I'm happy to do that. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about his, his background. Cause he, you know, he was really one of the first picking coaches in, in the country. Yeah. Um, Paul's background is as quirky as Paul is. I mean, his, his profession is that he's a UPS driver and he's been doing that for years, like 20 plus years. Um, he told me a story that I write about in A Few Seconds of Panic, that when he was a kid, he was just this obsessive little guy. And he just sort of got into kicking and he kicked and he kicked and like hundreds and hundreds of balls a day. He would go out in his street, he would kick over the telephone lines in his street and he just kicked constantly. I mean, this was a, you know, this was the, Paul is about my age. So he's I think a year or two older maybe. Um, so he was, uh, so he was, this was, he was growing up in the seventies and doing this when kicking was still kind of a weird thing, right? The perception of kickers in the sixties and seventies was still, little foreign guys or straight on kickers. Yeah, Tom um, Dempsey, right? The late Tom Dempsey, uh, may he rest in peace. You know, Fred Cox was one of my like kickers that I loved growing up. I was a Vikings fan. Really? Um, and the other guy that I loved um, were the Gogolak brothers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Pete Gogolak was a kicker for the Giants and that was my, my main team when I was growing up. And I would be in the backyard like I would be Pete Gogolak. Um, <laughs> kicking in the backyard. Um, right. So Paul was an obsessive in high school and you know, became a really good kicker in high school and was recruited by West Virginia. He went to West Virginia. He set all kinds of records, mm -hmm. some of which I think still stand to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and Paul got invited to NFL training camps and his claim to fame is that he was the last cut um, before Scott Norwood was made the Bills kicker. Gotcha. So well, he did never, he never made an NFL fans. roster, but he was the, he, he could have been Scott Norwood. Right. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. He would have made, made the kick then. I know. <laughs> well, so, you but, know, he, but he, but he couldn't let it go. So Paul was the kind of guy that he, he had devoted so much to kicking throughout his life that, and he, he understood that he needed to pass this on, that he wanted to help other kickers. Um, appreciate this craft and become great and do what he wasn't able to do, which is make the NFL. And he has done that time and time again over his coaching career. 
um, you know, he coaches at high schools and he loves these amazing camps and he works with, um, with, with college and NFL kickers. And the great thing about Paul and what makes him so interesting is that he is, he is just, he is so different from any coach you will ever meet. You know, he is so? so enthusiastic and so inspirational and so hokey all at the same time. You know, he's <laughs> telling these high school kids to read these books that they probably won't ever read. Um, he's telling them to read movies. He is encouraging them in this sort of over the top way. Right. Um, and you look at the kids who are like training with him and you're like, what are they thinking? To me, it was endearing and it was funny and it was lovable. Uh, but if you're like some 15 year old, you're wondering what is this dude up to? But when these kids start kicking better, mm -hmm. they appreciate that whatever Paul's doing, whatever these weird motivational techniques that he is trying to impose on you, they have an effect. And mm -hmm. I think people fall in love with Paul because he is so, as I did, because he is so genuine and loves doing this so much. And every time I was down, which was a lot, you know, <laughs> novice kicker and I'm yep. shanking balls from 25 and I'm kicking off 35 yards and I can't get the steps right. And he is never, never not once did he say, you shouldn't do this, this is crazy. He always said, let's do one more, let's do one more. You can do this, you're gonna go out to Denver, you're gonna do this, you're gonna be awesome, this is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and he made me believe that I could do it. And I'm generally by nature, kind of a cynical journalist. Um, I'm also a total pragmatist and I'm watching myself going like, man, I'm not even making like 35 yarders right now. And it's right. been six months, like I'm not consistent. How am I gonna pull this off? And Paul is telling me, no, 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 no. You have the belief, you are gonna do this. I trust you, you need to trust yourself. And it kind of worked. I mean, he helped get me to a place or even when I missed, and even when I wasn't, you know, when I was feeling weak and tired and, and unsure of myself, I would always think about Paul's mantras and what he was, how he encouraged me to persevere and get through it. Yeah. Well, what's your favorite Paulism? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, chipping and skipping. Still one of my favorites. And yeah. I would use that, you know, that would be my, if I ever lost my timing, I'd just think about Paul chipping and skipping, chipping and skipping. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, if you would talk to any other guys that have encountered him, um, they would all say, yes, he cared about me as a kicker, but he cared even more about me as a person. Absolutely. Um, and I think whether you're coaching fencing or chess, like, that's always a mark of a great coach. And I coach Scrabble, and let me tell you, I like, I, I coach middle school kids on Scrabble, and the most important thing is to understand that I, that they know that I care. Um, and that why? they know that I want them to get better. Now, I'm curious. So we'll, we'll go back to taking a second. And I coach Stop. Uh, and you wrote a book on, on Scrabble too. Yeah. And I see a trend in your writing that you tend to go a little bit more towards. So if you look at kicking, it's a lot of like you versus the ball, or really it's you versus you. You look at a sport like Scrabble or chess, which is all you versus yeah. you, all strategy, uh, or golf or tennis. Um, why are you drawn to more internal sports to cover as a writer? That's, that's a really good question, Brendan. And there's a kind of a simple answer in that it, it, if it's about your quest and it is not relying on other people's, um, other people around you to make it a reality, 
it is it's it's better it's more it's a more effective way of connecting with a reader my goal wasn't to like make the nfl i mean my goal you know on paper was yeah i wanted to kick a 50-yard field goal i never did it um but my goal beyond all of those 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 numerical sort of quests um, was to connect with the reader, to get the reader to empathize with what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. um, and that can't happen unless you struggle. So in writer terms, I couldn't succeed immediately and craft a narrative that would hold the reader's suspense. So for me, it's like the struggle is everything. The struggle is everything in our lives, right? How do we get better at something? By persevering, by working hard, by repetition. Mm -hmm. um, and repetitions are part of kicking, obviously. They're also part of like becoming an expert Scrabble player, which is what I did in Word Freak. Um, it's memorizing thousands and thousands of words. And in kicking, it's taking hundreds and hundreds of reps until it is pure muscle memory and pure instinct and the fear washes out of you. And these one-on, these, these, these self-driven pursuits are tailored beautifully to writing narratives, mm -hmm. um, first-person narratives, because it's a real tricky balance. Because on the one hand, you want the reader to care about me, the participant, but on the other hand, I'm not like really that good at it. So the people that I'm writing about around me are the ones that are the genuine experts. Mm -hmm. So the, the challenge is finding that balance between telling my quirky little story of trying to do something that someone who isn't naturally gifted at it um, is attempting to do and telling the really important story of the culture that I'm writing about, the culture that I have, um, that I have, that I have managed to access. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. I've infiltrated. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, as a way you're almost, you're almost like an avatar for a lot of fans who, and a, a lot of high school kickers, they're all like, Oh my God, like I would love to kick in the NFL. And when I'm lucky enough to do it, you know, I, I have a couple buddies who are in the NFL who do kick and they, they, they might come out to a session and kick with some high school kids, offer some, them some pointers. And it's, it's funny it's funny, like, you know, they can, the NFL guys are so good at just being normal, laid back, but the second they're about to kick, they just, they just, like, turn on. It's like Dragon Ball Z when they, like, flame on, like, total focus, and they just bash a 65-yarder, and then they just go back to being laid back. Yep. I think for, like, it's, it is really hard from the outside looking in to figure out what is that actually like. And, and you, you hit on another really good point of, of, about the book. And I wasn't sure what I was going to find when I got inside the Broncos locker room and onto the Broncos practice fields. Um, my hope was that I would tell two stories. So that was my goal. One story was the kicking part. And the kicking part is what you just described. It's the mental aspect of being a kicker, which in turn, bigger picture is the mental aspect of being uh, a professional athlete, of being the best at something, being a, one of the very few people in the world that can do this, this very specific activity. Um, to that end, I, you know, I, I, I spent a bunch of time with Matt Stover, 
um, yeah. in Baltimore. It was just up the road for me. Matt was awesome and generous with his time. He connected me with the um, sports psychologist who worked with the Ravens. He was hugely helpful. So I wanted to sort of understand the, the intricacies of kicking, both physical and mental, as a, as a window into the way athletes live and think and work and act. The second part, and I think the more important goal was kicking was the way in, like I said. The more important goal for me was to be able to show what it's really like to play in the NFL, to play the other positions, the skill positions, as if we're not skilled, right? Come on. Right, yeah. um, So I wanted to get the players to trust me enough that they would confide in me what they go through on a daily and weekly and monthly basis to, to, to be able to mentally achieve at this level and physically endure what you have to endure to play in the NFL. Um, that was the wild card. I had enough confidence in myself as a reporter that I felt that once I got into the locker room and I got, and I told these guys what I wanted to do, that they would trust me. Like I was a good enough guy that I could get, I could get past them thinking of me as a reporter. Um, and it really kind of worked. I mean, the, the, the cool thing was that NFL players are much smarter than I think the general public would appreciate. Um, and kickers, of course, are the smartest of all NFL players. Oh, yeah. Let's be clear. ISGPAs. Obviously, I mean, clearly. Yeah. ISGPAs, clearly. Um, and, you know, from the moment I got into that locker room and I sat down in my locker, which I was sharing with another training camp kicker named Tyler Fredrickson, and T. Freddie has gone on to be a, 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 a guy who was on, he was on Survivor. Oh yeah. Aggressive credential. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The film school, serious guy, curious, smart, persuading the kickers to let me into their world. That was easy. They right. were like, are you kidding me? Like attention on us. Awesome. We're already um, weird. Thank you. We're already weird and nobody understands what we do. Bring <laughs> it on. I want to tell the world what we right. do and what we go through. Jason Elam was the incumbent and star kicker for the Broncos at the time could not have been more generous in sharing his experiences, his personal life, and, and, and providing me with help. I mean, there's certainly other athletes that might have said, come on, I'm not gonna like waste my time on some reporter that has walked into training camp here. I got better things to do. Jason was the exact opposite. Every one of the guys on the Broncos special teams, um, from the snapper Mike Leach, to the, to the, to the, uh, to the, to the special teams coaches, to all the kickers and punters who cycled through that camp, mostly knowing that they weren't going to make the Broncos because Jason Elam was there. Um, right. Though the punting situation was a little bit different because Todd Sauerbrunn, great character. Sure. And, and I, th the I think they ended up changing the roster limitations um, a couple years after your they book. So, so it was pretty common and, and, you know, in, in talking to guys like John Carney, who, you know, John and a couple other guys are, you know, they're not gatekeepers per se, but they're, you know, they, they have a really good uh, kicking operation geared more toward those guys who are trying to make that jump from yeah. college to pro, right? You're a free agent and you're trying to get back in it. And one of the things that those guys talk to me about is just kind of how frustrating the opportunities are to at least, it's, it's not like you go to camp without a military, you expect, oh, I'm going to beat them out. Right. But for those guys to get, preseason tape, tape is like platinum because then that, then that shows everybody that's a green light 
to all the scouts. Yep. Like, okay, this guy's been there. He's done that. And I think they squeaked the rosters down. So I don't think you could probably do the same thing as you did now because you might go on a camp with just maybe the two guys who right. – Right. One extra guy they bring in. Yep, I think that's right. It went from 90 to 80. It was still 90 when yeah. I did this um, for a training camp, and I think they cut it to 80 or 81, something like that. Um, so I, I actually nailed it at a good time. And I also nailed it at a good team mm -hmm. for that Broncos team coached by Mike Shanahan, who was kind of aloof, but as with the players, you know, when I started to just tell them and it didn't take much, I just had to tell them what I wanted to do with the players. It was as simple as I want to explain what you go through without mm -hmm. the filter of daily report. I'm not interested in like who's getting cut, who's, you know, up or down, who dropped a pass in practice. I'm here to talk about your inner lives as professional football players. Mm -hmm. And pretty much to a player, they bought into it. I mean, they, they trusted me and they opened up to me. I mean, they're obviously, there are 90 guys in the locker room. Everybody's not going to want to sit down for an interview. Um, right. The offensive linemen were good guys, but harassed me a lot and <laughs> made it clear that they had no interest in participating, which was yeah. their sort of, silly frat credo they're the kickers of the offense they're the kickers of the offense they are um yeah but um and then the front office people also i mean shanahan ended up being really open with me mm -hmm. um pat bolin was wonderful with me i would sort of kick during the day and then when everybody was dismissed to go home or go back to the hotel i would stay in the broncos facility i would go upstairs I would talk to Ted Sundquist, who was the general manager. I would talk to Mike Shanahan, and I would talk to Pat. And I would sort of alternate among the three of them and got to know everyone else in the, in the staff. And it was a good team for that because they were very down to earth. Mike was much more down to earth than, you know, his reputation. Um, well, that's kind of like the Belichick effect, right? Everybody sees sure. like this granite stone mountain man. And then like, but in the rare clips that NFL films might have of him being right? seems like very normal yes yeah and mike mcshanahan was a lot like that i mean still very set in his ways but he would let his guard down with me and it helped also that i was telling everybody that look this isn't going to be published for two years um, and i already knew that the book wasn't going to come out the following summer it was going to come out the summer after that um so i had that that buffer of look it's not for tomorrow's paper i'm not writing for some i'm not writing for a website i'm not writing now, I'm not going to write stuff before the book comes out. So you can trust right. me that it's not going to come out for a couple of years. And the players were amazing. I mean, that, you know, this is now 14 years later since I did this. And what, what really sticks with me is the generosity, the candor, and the intelligence of everyone on that team. And I was about to say, like, one of the things that was helpful is that this wasn't a team with a Tom Brady. This wasn't a team with giant superstars. Jake Plummer was the quarterback, and you could not, like ask for a more down-to-earth dude than Jake yeah. Plummer. Um, and if that's your biggest star, you know, this was a perfect environment for me to walk into and have access and have the players buy into me being there. And that was so important. And, and Jake Plummer, if I remember, he was almost like the anti-hero. He was like the starting quarterback who wanted nothing to do with being a starting quarterback. Yeah, he, he, didn't, he didn't sort of buy any of the NFL's bullshit, basically. <laughs> I mean, Jake was, um, he, he resented the, the patriarchal controlling nature of NFL teams. He resented the fact that, you know, and a lot of this stemmed from Mike Shanahan and the way he ran the Broncos. He resented the fact that everything had to be so prescribed 
that there was a time for everything, that there were these, that there were these arbitrary rules that teams felt necessary to impose on these grown ass men. Um, he just didn't think it makes, made sense. I mean, at the very near the end of this book, one of my favorite um, passages in the book, and this was not an easy season for Jake Plummer. It turned out to be his last season. Um, what happens is that Plummer gets benched in the middle of the, you know, th th two thirds of the way through the year and rookie Jay Cutler starts. Mm -hmm. And Plummer had been putting me off for sitting down for an interview because he knew that things were tenuous. You know, during training camp, he was like, I just want to go home and hang with my dogs and my girlfriend. Um, and then once the season started, you know, it was not going great. And then finally, you know, I got him at the end of training camp. And then I went back out to Denver after he was benched. And then he just let it all out, um, you know, and talked about the frustrations of, of being in this, not just his unique position and what happened to him, but more broadly, the, the, the sort of the, the, his discomfort with the way the NFL operated and treated athletes. And yeah, and I, I see that there's a tension a lot between sport, you know, sports and business because there, you know, there's business norms and then there's social norms and sports. We talk about football as being the great egalitarian sport. Anybody, anywhere, at any time could go from nothing to something, spud to stud. And when you jump to the pro level, when you start to see money involved, when those values kind of get blurred, it can put some guys off. Um, let's talk a little bit about, I wonder if you could contrast your experience with a guy like Jason Elam versus a guy like Todd Sauerburn. Mm -hmm. So for, you know, people listening, obviously Elam was one of the, I would count him as, you know, very Vinatieri-esque, very, he played a long time, yep. really consistent. Um, Todd Sauerburn had a cannon leg, one of the best punters, like physically, probably in the past 20 years. Um, but they had very different uh, personalities, so to speak. So could you, could you kind of the least. Yeah, compare and contrast your experience with, with those guys and kind of what their stories were? I mean, Jason was a grown up. I mean, he had kids, he was mature. He was this um, conservative Christian, very devout in his beliefs, very sad in his ways. I mean, Todd was much more of this rebel and that's part of his background and part of his upbringing. He had been in trouble with the NFL. He had been suspended a couple of times already. He was suspended at the beginning of the camp um, when I got there. And my first interaction with him was, was me saying, look, I know that some shit's coming down here, but I want you to know I'm here and I'm doing this. And Todd just didn't want to talk. I mean, he spent the entire summer basically being off the record with me and giving me shit. And that was fine. Like as a journalistically, that was kind of cool. It was like I needed a foil. I needed an anti-hero. Right. Um, Jason, by contrast, I think Jason Jason sympathized with Todd or empathized with him. Um, he wanted to help him get past these demons um, that had hampered his career. You know, he believed firmly that Todd could have been one of the best punters in NFL history. Mm -hmm. um, but he couldn't get out of his own way because he also, Todd, was angry at the system, mm -hmm. didn't like the way the NFL treated players, didn't like the way he had been treated in his career, and also wouldn't own up to his mistakes entirely. Um, so there was a real, like, we we're talking about these two poles in terms of someone that wants to have a long career and is willing to do what it takes, and someone who had sort of constitutionally was unable 
to follow the rules to allow him to get to that point. It seems interesting because in most positions, special talent gets special treatment. So, And it, Todd did. I mean, Todd yeah. got some special treatment. Mm-hmm. He and absolutely I, did. And it really was, it was, it was only after he pushed Mike Shanahan one time too many. I mean, he was busted for ephedrine and mm-hmm. suspended under the NFL's drug policy. And whether you think that's fair or not, mm-hmm. it happened. And then Todd fucked up. I mean, he got into an argument with a, with a cab driver and got in trouble and the cops were called. And, right. you know, he just, he couldn't get out of his own way. And it was sad. It was sad to everyone who was there. And, you know, I finally, when I went back the following summer and Todd was back, um, was back in camp, I think, as I recall. And he sat down with me and he talked about how, you know, I just screwed up. Um, I mean, his career was effectively over, which was sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had come to this realization that, you know, that it didn't go the way he wanted to. And he even apologized to me, which was kind of mm-hmm. nice. He said, he, I wish I could have been, you know, more uh, open and more involved. Um, but I was just not in the, in, in the right space. I was too angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, uh, it is interesting to see how, I guess when, yeah, because, you know, you, we, we think of kickers as like, you know, afterthought, but yes, you take maybe five minutes of practice, but there's still just as much personality in the specialist room as there is anywhere else. Totally. Um, and I really wanted to convey that. Yeah. And I, but I think your, your book did a good job of doing that. And, you know, where if you had Antonio Brown, but if he was a punter, the guy would have been cut four years ago. Right. Um, so, I mean, Todd did get some special treatment but there still is a very <laughs> incredibly short leash with, with specialists. There are so many of them lined up waiting to get in. You know, there's only 32 jobs yeah. um, at each of those positions. And there's a lot more guys that have the, certainly the physical makeup to do it. Um, and a smaller number have the mental makeup to do it. And those are the ones that, that end up having long careers. So let's talk about the mental makeup side. So at one point, Shanahan threw you in, to do a, a full kick in front of thousands of people at your training camp. Um, and then you, so you have, so kind of talk about when you would see Jason Elam go through his field goal sessions. Like I remember, yeah. right. Oh, he went, you know, nine for nine, 10 for 10, but he was pissed off with one of them because the, the ball rotation was too high right. or whatever. It wasn't a perfect hit. Right. So talk, talk us through what it was like watching Jason Elam from a mental perspective. And then, what was that experience like for you when you were unexpectedly thrown into the fire? Well, you know, my whole plan, both personally, physically, and journalistically, was to get to the point where mm-hmm. I could experience what everyone was experiencing. I mean, I really wanted to kick in a preseason game, and the NFL didn't let me. Um, so camp was going to be my chance to experience this. And I was wildly erratic, right? Like a lot of so-so kickers. There would be days when I'm making, you know, I'm like doing the progression and I'm starting at 25 and I'm going back to 40 and I'm nailing them and they're high and the rotation is great and I feel amazing and my body feels totally in sync. And then there were days when I was just all over the place. Um, You know, I was also, I was 43. I mean, I was, I had a, I I strained my hip flexor during camp, which freaked me out because if I can't kick, I can't do a book. Um, So I was taping myself up and Jake Plummer would give me shit while he was watching me, like put on, you know, 
hot stuff and wrapping myself right. up um, and getting treatment and going in the ice pool and then taking up the trainer's time. Um, so I was wildly erratic. But watching Jason, like, like watching any athlete, and as a reporter who has interviewed a lot of athletes, what is, you know, what I find to be the most interesting and most effective way to talk to athletes is to talk about what they do in granular detail. And that was one of the things I wanted to do in writing this book. I wanted to understand exactly what you need to be able to do to be great at something. Right. In the case of the NFL, I wanted to understand just how intricate and detailed and complicated the jobs of all of these players are. One of my favorite passages in the, in the book is when I ask one of the running backs to just walk me through a play. Mm -hmm. And he spends, it's like a three minute discourse on everything that's happening on one simple play. Um, and he ended the, 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 his little lecture by saying, and people think we're dumb. <laughs> NFL players right. are not dumb. Well, that's a stereotype on, on especially running backs. It's it's oh. like you gotta um, know what everybody's doing. Like literally every player on the field. Yeah, I mean, and, and running backs are treated as like so expendable. They're almost right. treated at the same way as kickers are. Like, oh, I'll just get another one. Get another oh, one. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so watching Elam was for me this this revelation. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's that supreme confidence about your ability. You know that you can tap into the, 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 the perfection at almost any time. The force. <laughs> the force. And at the same time, there's such, um, such close attention to every tiniest detail. And that's what sets the greatest athletes apart. Mm -hmm. It's the, the, the cognizance. It's the awareness of every action that goes into the larger action. Mm -hmm. So for Jason, it's every ask for any kicker, it's every aspect of the kick from your breath to your steps, to your body weight, to your movements, to where you spot the ball, where you strike the ball, where you're looking, follow through all of it. I mean, it's obviously, I don't have to tell anyone that's listening to this because you're all kickers, that it is the most intricate process that has to be replicable. Mm -hmm. And what really amazed me with Jason is just, it's the calm that the best athletes have. It's mm -hmm. that internal space that they go to, that place they go to where nothing can stop them. <clears throat> and while they're doing all that, the sort of secondary consciousness of what you exactly did. Sort of like watching LeBron talk about a play from a game. Right. Um, you know, he's got this sort of, this encyclopedic recall, um, this, 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 this perfect memory for everything that's happened on the court. And it's like that with most athletes. They're able to sort of deconstruct exactly what went right and what went wrong. And so watching Jason wasn't just intimidating because here's this guy like banging him from, you know, 55 and 60 in practice and then walking off disappointed because one thing went wrong. Um, yeah. It's, it's the sort of, how do, you, how do you have that kind of a personality? I don't have that kind of personality. I'm a total overthinker. Um, mm. The same themes came through when I was doing the Scrabble book as came through writing about kicking in the NFL. Like it's where my insecurities mm. lie. Like trying to overcome those things is really hard. So on the first time that Mike Shanahan called my number um, during practice, and the stakes were 
everybody gets 30 minutes off of meetings that night if I make one. And I just panicked. I mean, you know, Jason had said to me earlier, you know, kicking his hours of boredom followed by a few seconds of panic, um, which he didn't invent. It was sort of like, that comes from like military writing, um, like being on warships, I think. Um, but it was so true. And like, I was really good at the hours of boredom. It was the few seconds of panic that were really hard for me to yeah. process. Um, yeah. So that first time I went out there, I mean, it was just an ugly, ugly kick. Um, I slipped, my timing was off, my heart was racing. I don't you know which back while you were kicking. I might as well have. It was so embarrassing. And then Shanahan like moved it in five yards. I was like, I don't want to move in five yards. It's a fucking chip shot. I don't need to move. In. It's not. It's not that distance, Mike. It's my brain. Um, and I shanked that one too. And it was like the dudes were like, and it was you know again for the book. It was great because it was the I can't remember who it was that came up to me and said, now you understand what we go through every right. second of every day. Did you feel like messing up publicly got everybody to feel bad for you and then they talked to you more? Because they feel like you finally got it. I mean, I think at that point that I was already part of the team. I mean, yeah. I was already like accepted part of the locker room. Um, but what it got them to do was it, it, it made them think that now I really get it that now I understand the pressure. And what I think they respected was that I was willing to submit myself mm -hmm. to that pressure and submit myself to the scrutiny of all of their eyes and the 2000 fans that had come to practice that day. Right. That I was willing to put it on the line the way they put it on the line every day. So I think I did gain some respect from failing and then not to give it away, but I do make one later in camp. Um, right. And, you know, that was sort of redemptive. It was still a shitty kick, the one I made. It was not my, my best effort, but at least I made one. Um, yeah. You know, but that was sort of, those were moments were great for earning some, you know, that, like I just said, like getting the players to sort of be able to say, now he gets it, ha ha. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe he'll write about it in a way that the public can understand better what we go through. But the moment for me personally that, that resonated and I can still to this day feel and see is it was like late in camp. They had already like flipped the fields. The team was set. It was like my last, one of my last couple days um, with the Broncos and I'm kicking by myself on an alternate. No, they hadn't flipped the fields yet. I take that back. They flipped the fields after everybody was cut. Um, and, but it was the end of practice. Most of the players had left the field. The kickers were still out there bullshitting. And I just went off by myself to the one of the fields, um, you know, 20 feet away from the day from where the other guys were sent talking. And I just started banging them through one after another. I started at like whatever it was, 30, 30 or 32. And I've never felt more comfortable, never felt more in the zone. And then finally, when I got to like 40, Todd turns around, Todd Sauerbrunn looks up and he could hear the sound of my kick and he, and he turns around and he goes, whoa. How far was that? Yeah. It's like, well, I got through to Todd. I'm done here. My work is done. <laughs> yeah. And I think, what was it about? Um, so uh, I don't know if you've read any of his books, Dr. Bob Rattella. He wrote that book, Golf's Not a Game of Perfect. Yeah, the golf guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so he, his, one of his lines, I, forget, I don't even know if it was in that book, but one of his lines is, you know, golf is fun. 
just because, you know, you get to whack a ball, but the, the real cool part about golf is not so much what you can do with it, but what it helps you teach you about yourself. What did this experience teach you about yourself? Wow. That's a, you know, read the book. I mean, that would be my, my first, first request. Um, and, but what did it teach myself? That I could do this, that I could do something that in my wildest dreams, I did not think I could do. And yeah, look, kicking a 41 yard field goal is really no big deal. There are eighth graders that can do this. Um, but for me, it was, it was a mountain. I mean, it was, I hadn't kicked, I literally had not kicked a football probably since I was on my high school soccer team and we were just messing around on the field, you know, when the football team was coming on for practice. Um, so it had been literally, I was 43, you know, 43 to 17, you know, tw more than 25 years since I had kicked a football. And it's, for anyone that's played soccer, you know that it's a very different motion. It's a very different skill. Um, it was, so for me, it was like that I could actually do this and get to a point that I could, I could will myself, my body and my mind to learn this skill and to do it well enough that these experts, these professional athletes, the very best at what they do could um, look at me, not with disdain or mockery, but look at me with some degree of respect that I had the, the, the ability to go and do that. I mean, I wish I had started kicking when I was 14. I was really small and yeah. my leg wasn't as good as it was when I was 43, but I bet I would have been okay. Yeah, Mike Hollis was 5'9", 180 pounds, played for 10 years, 9, 10 years. Yeah. But um, and so as a, as a follow-up, as like a PS, do you still maintain any of those relationships with the guys that you met in camp? And if so, where have some of the, their journeys kind of taken them? This is actually something I want to do as a story. I want to catch up with um, some of the guys that I have lost touch with mm -hmm. on the team. I'm still really close with – um, with a couple of the, the, the non-star players uh, mm -hmm. on the team. I mean, I'm in touch with Tyler Fredrickson. You know, we're on Twitter. We, we, you know, we chat every once in a while. I'm really good friends with a guy named Nate Jackson, um, who was a, a tight end on the team and went on to become a writer. He's written two great books about, uh, about his, uh, two great memoirs about playing in the NFL. Right. Uh, slow getting up and fantasy man, which I also right. highly recommend. And okay. I'm really proud of Nate because Nate, took an interest in me because I was a writer and he wanted to learn how to do this. It was something he wanted to do. And I really helped nurture Nate's post-football career as a writer and got him introduced and got his pieces published in Deadspin and Slate and the New York Times and other places. And then he went on to write these two great books and he's still writing. So super proud of that. Um, still friendly with a backup quarterback named Preston Parsons. Mm -hmm. Still friendly with Jake Plummer, who I talk with once in a while. Had him on my Slate podcast, Hang Up and Listen. He's he still living times. off the grid? He's uh, not off the grid entirely, but yeah, he's totally got a laid back life in Colorado. Yeah. He's got his wife and kids and he yeah. couldn't be happier. He's uh, Jake is a free spirit and an awesome, awesome dude. Um, who's not turned his back on football. He, you know, I, I thought that he might given the way he exited the game, mm -hmm. um, but he ended up coaching for a while and he's still, still into it and, and, and still tries to, to have a hand in media and other stuff. So love Jake. Um, and, you know, still in touch with my kicking coach. Yeah. From, from, from Denver, Jeff Hayes was a part-time guy that the Broncos had come into camp. Um, uh, on a regular basis. So gotcha. yeah, every so often I hear from my, my special team coaches and, and others connected with the team too.
Now, what makes, so there, you know, there, it's funny, but like um, quite a few of the kids that I work with do want to go into sports writing or journalism in general. So for you, I guess two questions, what makes a great story? And then two, what makes a great sports story? Huh. Um, I mean, what makes a great story is just, the, is just that people have something to tell. People have something to say. Um, you know, something that stands out that is dramatic and interesting. It doesn't even have to be dramatic. That is just different and interesting. I mean, one of the things that I learned at the Wall Street Journal that ended up really influencing how I wrote these last two books that I've written, Word Freak and, and A Few Seconds of Panic, is finding stories that no one else has been able to tell in a, in a thorough way. Um, and that can be something small and in your community, or it can be something bigger and book length like I was able to do um, at, a, at, 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 a, at a eventual stage in my career. Um, in terms of sports, I came to sports writing late. I, I worked overseas early in my career. I covered Wall Street for a bunch of years. I covered insider trading and, and financial crime for a few years. Um, it wasn't until I got to the Wall Street Journal and they were just starting a sports page, not even a yeah, section. They're not known for that. <laughs> no, they certainly weren't. Um, and they hired me kind of because I had written a bunch of sports stuff. You know, I did a few freelance pieces for them, but th this was not a place to go write about sports. Um, and what I liked about it is that, and it persists to this day in a much better way with more writers and, and more great storytelling, is that the journal taught me to find things that, like I said, nobody has written about. That was almost like a prerequisite for the stories that we proposed. Nobody else had to have thought about it, um, to thought of it. Um, and kicking kind of fit that bill for me. It was sort of, I'm going to write about another sports book because there are a lot of sports books, obviously. Um, a lot of books about the year in the life of a team or a league or whatever. Um, I wanted to find something totally different. So sure, I borrowed from history. I stole from George Plimpton, one of the sort of the great um, writers of the of the 20th century. But, you know, Plimpton didn't come up with the idea to participate in sports himself either. It was a guy named Paul Gallico in the 1920s who first sort of pioneered this yeah. idea of infiltrating a sport or a, and, and doing it as a writer. Um, so we borrow all the time, you know, and for me, it was, it's finding these weird niches that haven't been explored by others um, and finding a story within them that's worth telling. Gotcha. If you steal only once, it's plagiarism, but if you steal from everybody, it's research. Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> Boiled, so let's say like this book was burned for, let's say, let's say every copy of this book was got, vanished off the face of the planet and I gave you a post-it note and said, okay, you only get three bullet points to boil down the lessons that you want the reader to take away from this book. What are they? The NFL is merciless. NFL players are not the glorified, happy stars that you think they are kickers are fantastic <laughs> awesome i think we'll end it right there all right so let's stop the room thanks for listening to another episode of the kickers are people to podcast if you like this episode or even better if you didn't like it please drop us a review on itunes so we can get better for everybody else this is important because we're going to start to give away some free, cool prizes in the coming weeks, episodes, 
and seasons. Thank you.